So recently I was rooting through some old boxes under my bed and came across a book, Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Anyway, I'd ordered this book well over a decade ago on eBay, and it's a really early edition published in 1873. And it struck me that this book that I'm holding in my hands has been cared for for nearly 150 years. Like someone bought this book in England in 1873 and read it and looked after it. And I have no idea how many other people looked after this book along its journey before it reached me. But I find it just incredible. Like, how did this little book survive for all that time? And then I started thinking about even older books and manuscripts, ones that are thousands of years old. Like, how are they here at all? I can't wrap my head around it. It's like trying to think how big space is. Well, luckily, there is a library that looks after some of the oldest, rarest books and manuscripts in the world. And it's actually just two minutes from my house. So that is where we are going right now to get some answers. Like right now. Come on. Uh, Keys... Oh, and by the way, I'm Liam Garrity, and it's time to meet your maker. (coughs) Excuse me. Meet your maker. This building that we're now standing in front of, it's the Chester Beatty on the grounds of Dublin Castle. It's often described as the finest collection of manuscripts and books made by a private collector in the 20th century. And that private collector was, you guessed it, Chester Beatty. The Chester Beatty Library is the collection of Sir Alfred Chester Beatty. That's Christine Rose Beers, the senior conservator here. He was a New Yorker. He made his money in mining. Unfortunately, in his early 30s, he developed silicosis, which is the miner's disease. And he was advised to travel for his health. I think he'd always been a bit of a collector, but this travel really sort of fed that that desire to collect. And collect he did. Manuscripts, prints, drawings, rare books, miniature paintings, just these amazing treasures from Asia, the Middle East, North Africa and Europe. He was fortunate enough to be wealthy and well-informed, so he could speak to different advisors, different sales rooms, and they could suggest to him things that he might be interested in purchasing. And as such, he built this incredible collection. Because he was, again, a generalist, not a specialist in any particular area, he was keen to collect things from everywhere. And I think that's one of the absolute strengths of this collection. Christine is bringing me to the conservation lab. Yes, you're really welcome. (laughs) This is conservation at the Chester Beatty. The one thing you notice when you come in here is that it's so cool. It is. We try and keep the environment in here nice and controlled. It's best for the objects and it's quite nice for us at this time of year. I 
was always interested in an art, but I was also always interested in science. And my mum always says that she loved leaving me in stationery shops while she had to go to the post office because I would be picking up paper and pens and really content looking at all the materials. So I think it, it, as I got to sixth form, and I studied art history and art and sciences, it seemed a logical way to bring them together. My name is Julia Poirier, and I'm a book conservator here at Chester Beatty. Like Christine, Julia fell in love with everything about books from an early age. I just wanted to do something crafty. I just wanted to do something with my hands. Like, I wasn't that good at, like, the whole drawing thing or painting. So I just kind of loved craft and the idea of making stuff, physical stuff. You know, like, this idea of going into an old library and just seeing kind of books from, like, floor to ceiling. That was really what drew me to bookbinding actually initially and then eventually to conservation of books. Conservation of art objects is about preserving an object as it survives today. So we don't restore, we're not trying to make an object look brand new again, but we're just trying to stabilise the material that survives, that we have in our collections now, so that they're available for future generations. We're really custodians, we're, we're trying to ensure that a manuscript which might already be 1,000 years old can hopefully survive, certainly for another 100 Christine is a manuscripts conservator. I specialise in books, the way that they are made across millennia and the materials that they are made from. So in terms of how I approach any manuscript, which we might be preparing for an exhibition or for loan to another gallery, what I'm trying to do is look at the, the physical object and see how it survives today. Does it still function? Can I still open the book and turn the pages? Or actually is the spine a bit creaky and, and vulnerable and so it needs special support from a bespoke cradle or cushion? And then other things like the detail of the pages. So the pages could be paper, but they might also be parchment. Are they working well? Are they still flexible and malleable? Or are they becoming brittle and, and delicate? Are they torn? If so, then I'll make physical interventions to stabilise them. And these will be incredibly minimal. So we use all of the science that we have available to us, but to inform our choices. And generally it means we, we tend to be rather conservative. We don't like doing something unless we can ensure that it's reversible and that it will have good ageing properties and that it's, it's still maintaining the integrity of the object. So we don't want to do anything that would suggest that an object hasn't had a long and interesting life. And the books here have led very long lives. With the really early biblical papyrus. Which is a handwritten copy of text from the Bible that's dated to the 3rd century and written on papyrus, one of the many materials that people used to write on before paper was invented. You would have had papyri growing along the banks of the River Nile so it was totally localised to Egypt, but it was traded. This was an incredibly valuable and sought-after commodity. So papyri travelled. Then there's parchment. Which is a limed and tensioned animal skin. So it might be goat, it could be calf, sheep. These were common species to make parchment from. Parchment, again, is incredibly durable. It was pretty readily available if you had the technology and the craftspeople who were prepared to do such a horrible job. And eventually came paper. Paper. 
paper was invented in East Asia. It was probably a Chinese invention. I'm not entirely certain of the date, but certainly the very first centuries AD, and perhaps BC. It was very early. And then, as with all of these inventions, it takes usage and time for it to be transmitted across. And the mythology is that at the Battle of Talis in the late eighth century, the Arabs at this battle they they captured Chinese papermakers, and the Chinese papermakers, to spare their lives, said, "We'll tell you how to make paper." And so, technology was transmitted to the Islamic world. And then, along. Probably more realistically, along the Silk Roads, the the trade routes, finally this technology of paper reached Europe, and paper doesn't really take over until the mid 1400s. So it takes an awfully long time for this technology to move across. The paper, accordingly, is totally localized. It depends on the materials that you have available to you. So in East Asia, it tends to be raw plant fibres, often from mulberry, and the bark is processed in such a way as to give you these beautiful long fibres, which make an incredibly thin and strong piece of paper. In the Islamic world, they probably used some raw plant fibres, but they also used processed fibres from rags and cottons, and so they would use those together to prepare their paper pulp and then eventually form a sheet of paper. By time the technology gets to Europe, it's largely rags and processed textile waste. There are objects everywhere at the moment. We are currently preparing for a number of exhibitions. So as you walk around, each of us have like our own workspace, and in each of those spaces, there there is a different object. So right in front of us on the main bench is、um, a beautiful Thai manuscript, which Alice has been conserving. She's currently doing these small paper repairs to prepare this object for an exhibition next year. Books with long lives tend to come with the remnants of all the times they've been repaired over the centuries. I think that means people actually cared for those books, like they were important things, and like throughout their lives, people have tried to repair them if they were kind of falling apart slightly. I think 19th century is a bit of a Tough time for bookbinding because a lot of antique dealers and things like that would kind of get their hands on. On books, and they they wouldn't really kind of think about the fact that they're old and that maybe they should re- retain their original binding. They would just rebind them in something that's a little bit more appropriate to a gentleman's library, and that's a little sad, obviously. Twentieth century again, like early twentieth century, is a is a bit of a mixed bag. There's a lot of、uh, well, the development of like. Pressure sensitive tape is not <laughs> is not good. <laughs> There's a lot of、uh, absolutely horrible things that people have done by just sticking things back together with pressure sensitive tape. What is that? Oh, it's a scotch tape. Oh, just oh, just, sorry, ju- oh yeah, just jargon. Using the professional jargon, <laughs> pressure sensitive tape. Okay,、it's、so like, people just like using scotch, scotch yeah, sellotape on books, and that's really. Every conservator's bugbear, like it's just people have destroyed so much by using sellotape. I can't even, <laughs> I can't even talk about it. <laughs> 
I love that every single object has centuries worth of stories to tell you. And when we're conserving an object, you have this really close, intimate view of an object. So it feels as though you're closer to the people who have owned this book in the past and who have cared for this book in the past. Most of the material we deal with here at the Chester Beauty is manuscript material. We do have printed material, but most of it is written by hand. And again, just knowing that an individual picked up his pen or his reed, dipped it into his ink, which he'd probably made, and then decided to write something on the page is incredible. It's a real insight into this sort of window of the past. What would be one of your favourite projects that you've worked on? I'm sure there's loads, but... (laughs) It's difficult not to choose the one that's on my bench. Um, (laughs) But, mm, yes, it's difficult not to choose that one. So at the moment, I'm working on this early 8th century Quran. I like it because it's a real challenge. It is Umayyad, so that, that dates it to the early 8th century. It's on parchment, so an animal skin. And there are 201 folios, so that's 402 pages. It's a big book. It is about almost 50 centimetres tall. And each of these folios, which survive from that incredible early date, are handwritten in a sort of blackish-brown ink in a Kufic script, and it's the text of the Quran. So whilst we know the text, the very early date of this text is particularly interesting. The thing that makes this manuscript stand apart from from other manuscripts is its very large size, but also the fact that it has these incredibly beautiful geometric bands of illumination throughout. And they're actually marking surah or chapter endings. And illumination at this date is really unusual. So that's why we were fascinated to do some research and find out a bit more about it. Personally, The challenge of how to approach such an old and such a complex object is really exciting. It means that I have to be thinking about lots of different variables. How will this book be used? Can it ever be a book again? Because at the moment it's individual pages. And then it has very severe ink corrosion. So the ink it was written with is a gallotanic ink and it's incredibly corrosive. It contains iron and the iron effectively rusts through the page. So now there are little holes where there should have been words and I have to find a way to stabilise them so that you can turn the pages without it crumbling. The biggest problem is that the traditional methods we would use to repair a hole in a page use water and water is a catalyst for the deterioration of this ink. There's so much science involved to figure out the ins and outs of manuscripts and how they were made. And it got me thinking, wouldn't it be great if they just found like a how-to book from the time? Like manuscripts telling you how to make manuscripts. I asked Julia, and apparently there is. In the West, definitely, like the monks would have written a lot of of the manuscripts, and so there is a f- definitely a few texts on how to prepare your dyes or how to pair your leather and all that kind of stuff. And then in the Islamic world, there is a few treaties as well that would exist. We're always looking for more. In the Samaritan world, I think there's no such things really. I think a lot more of a like a smaller production so it'd be more like kind of passed on from like father to son that kind of a way and I think there's a lot of that anyway in the 
in the manuscript pr production kind of world, I think you you just kind of get get an apprentice who's quite often like family related, and then like you know they take on the the business of writing the books and preparing the inks and all that kind of things. Julia says these how-to guides can't always be trusted, though. There's definitely like some things where they where they mention like certain techniques, and where and you know it's kind of odd, and you're like, how is that? practical to do it this way are you sure you're not making this up and actually quite qu not quite often but sometimes the people who write those treaties they're not the people who actually make the things they're just the, the author so they might have gone and visited some workshops and maybe got kind of slightly muddled up and kind of wrote the treaties but actually it's so it's either a mistake or it's like a way of keeping a secret It's 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 hard to know because those books were written in the 12th century and obviously everybody's well dead and it's impossible to kind of tell. With all this in mind, I wondered if modern publishers and printers give any thought to the materials their books are made out of. Do they give any consideration to ensure their books have long and healthy lives? I'm not sure how much they consider it. Certainly, I think if you speak to any book conservator, probably any conservator, we're pretty fastidious about the objects that we will buy. I like my technology pre-1500 when it comes to books. Um, but modern stuff, paperbacks tend to be... Well, they tend not to have very much paper in them. They're fillers and wood pulp, so they're not a good quality material. Then the adhesives. I mean, everyone who's read a book on the beach in the summer understands that you just open it once and it cracks and the pages fall to pieces. So I think the book suffers from being such a familiar object. Everyone knows what a book is or thinks they do. And so... They're just, they're a bit too familiar, which means we don't care for them as much often. The quality of materials, I think, is a massive influence. If the materials are, are low quality, then it will fall apart and there's only so much that you can do. So the British Library, the National Library here in Ireland, they have huge problems with newspaper. So this is something that people want to keep for posterity so that we can understand what was going on. But it's such low quality material that it just falls to pieces and there's not a huge amount that you can do about it. However, I think there's a real revival at the moment of kind of craft skills, of an interest in quality. Probably hipsters had a bit to do with it. And there, it means that if you walk into Chapters or any other bookshop out there, you can... Um, you can find nice hardback editions and they tend to be slightly better made. They, they, they have nice quality paper. Often they'll even tell you in the back the paper that they're printed on and the bindings will be a bit more interesting and classy. Contemporary art and conservation is a completely different field. We certainly don't have any contemporary art here but like that is a big big subject of discussion in the conservation world and I think like there's definitely a lot of conversation between conservators and artists so when like museum that collects contemporary art they usually really try to actually interview the artists and ask them the questions directly and go like well if 
this piece of paper, which is obviously like, uh, I don't know, newsprint and is not going to really make it through the years, if that kind of falls off, do you want us to keep it that way? Do you want us to buy another piece of paper and just stick it down? People are trying to kind of encourage to talk to to the artists themselves and the artists to give the actual answers. And that's really interesting because there's a lot more to conservation then because it becomes nearly a conversation with the artists, which is something that we don't get to do because they're all, well, they're not around anymore. So as, as we said, like we have the treaties, but that's, there's not that many and, and they don't really talk about things like that. very strongly that the objects that we're looking after are our shared cultural heritage. We're trying to make sure that there, there are documents and records and art objects which all of us can appreciate and show how humanity is shared and how much we have in common across cultures. couldn't go to the conservation lab with some of the world's greatest conservators and not bring my copy of Through the Looking Glass, the one I've been keeping in a box under my bed. Do you, do you have any guesses? I mean, the only thing I've told you is I think that it's from 1873 and I think I got it when I was a teenager. I think I ordered it on eBay. I mean, d- d- is that too vague, <laughs> the year? Well, the fact that you just told me you got it on eBay means I have discounted one of my initial theories, which was that it would be a family Bible. <laughs> because um, this is the one tome that conservators are frequently bought where somebody says oh my goodness, I have this incredibly old and precious volume, which of course it is to them, and it's a Victorian family Bible. I can also see, I can't see the book yet, but I can see your bag, so I can see it's not big enough to be a family Bible. (laughs) And the fact that you got it on eBay and knowing the little bits I do about you, I'm thinking it's going to be some kind of horror type (laughs) first edition I don't know (laughs) the other thing that I'm mildly concerned about Mm. is after like going through all the painstaking and the carefulness that you look after books here I just realized like this book is in a storage box underneath my bed (laughs) and I'm like and when I took it out as you're going to see it's in it and it's in a plastic bag and like the plastic bag was was my way of okay it's you know it's protected from dust you know it's in its storage so I'm kind of like I kind of think you're going to be horrified at the way I've kept it that's okay we can help you (laughs) (laughs) I think that as a book conservator our families dread having objects around us because we're so pedantic about how they're looked after so I don't want my books to get any sunlight on them I don't want them to fade I don't really like it when they're standing up on shelves because the gravity can ruin the structure So all of these protective measures, and if you have a book that you love, I think there are really easy things you can do to ensure that it survives for longer. So I like your uh, textile carrying bag. I like less the plastic bag that the book is in. Oh, it's pretty though. Oh, poor little thing. Okay. Oh. Oh, this is lovely. Is it Alice in Wonderland? It's actually through the looking glass, but yeah. Fabulous. So I was just looking at the decoration on the cover 
and it's really pretty. Um, oh, it is really falling to pieces. So <laughs> I want to say it was like that when I got it. No, actually, when, when it arrived, the spine, which I think is just on, on the inside, came off, was kind of hanging on by a thread, but has come off since. I can see. So the, the nice thing about it is this is a book that has been used and loved. It has been read, which is very important. But yeah, so now I can see on the spine that the textile of the cover, like a linen type buckram, which is red and then has gold tooling, the spine has fallen away completely. But the sewing underneath is intact. So that's really good. And it actually means it would be relatively straightforward to to repair it and make it functional again and keep all those pieces together the spine has been damaged by use and by light so light is hugely damaging the uv component in light and it has broken down the textile and that's coupled with the the point where the boards hinge and that's where it's broken away but you've got everything which is great because that means you can put it back together well, someone can put it back together. <laughs> so, yeah, that, I mean, that's the really lovely thing about it, is that books that were published in the late 19th century, they're not the greatest quality of materials, but they were produced because there was such a huge market for reading. People wanted to read a lot and they wanted to buy special volumes. So I think that makes them quite lovely. What about the, the, the little kind of spots that seem to be on a lot of the pages? Yeah. What you're seeing is these little sort of dark brown rust-coloured freckles and they are called foxing. And it's a bit of a mysterious ailment for books, but it occurs particularly in books of the kind of 19th century, other times too. And one theory is that it's to do with tiny flecks of metal from the paper-making machinery, which are caught in the paper. But another is that it's to do with mould. It could well be a bit of both. And you can remove it, but to remove it is generally quite interventive because you'd have to use bleach. And also, it doesn't necessarily work. So you might remove something temporarily, but it may then come back. So again, I would tend to consider it just part of the object at this point. Yeah. Oh. It's really sweet. The um the prints are really nice. There's a little inscription from whoever owned it at some point. Is that something that kind of things you're dealing with are are you know far older to, to probably have you know types of inscription on them? But is is handwriting like figuring out what it actually because I, I, I can't make you know out even even the letters. It's true. I'm just looking. So there's the name Mabel something in the front of the book. This is, I'm assuming, the person who owned it. Oh, it's her name again. It's her full name written on the facing page, which is Mabel something Wyndham something. We'd have to get somebody who's good at this kind of handwriting. (laughs) But actually, lots of the manuscripts that we're looking at have inscriptions. So again, because they might have been passed from one library to another, from one owner to another... Very often there is a note which says something along the lines of this book belongs to. And in the Islamic books, you get seals in particular, which will decorate the front of the manuscripts. And they are inscriptions saying this belonged to this person. It was read by this person in their library on such and such a date. One of the lovely things that we have in many of Chester Beatty's manuscripts 
his little inscriptions when they were given to him. So his wife, Edith, purchased lots of books and gave them to Beattie. So you'll see something that says, Merry Christmas, darling, and, wow. and a little note, love, Edith. And I, I think things like that are really, they just make it so personal. What should I be doing? Like going forward, what should I be doing to keep this book? Well, I suppose keep this book in good condition. It's not really in good condition, but but to, 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 to prevent any more uh, bad things happening to it. Yeah, so in terms of preventive conservation, to stop it getting any worse, it's all about how you store it. So you have done the right things. It's trying to enclose it to keep it out of dust. What I'd suggest is maybe a piece of textile or just a nice sort of acid-free box, something like that. And then dark is helpful too. Light is, is a bit of an enemy. So if your book is lying down and it's protected from dust and direct sunlight, it, it will be preserved your little book, because the spine has broken down, could probably do with a bit of remedial care, because otherwise he's going to break much more, even if you're just looking at him carefully like this. So I'm sure we could find somebody to help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> It goes without saying that the Chester Beattie is an exceptional place to visit and admission is free. Meet Your Maker is produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. I'll be back in two weeks. Until then, look after your books. 